Our Father in heaven, your words are indeed life. We thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us to make it clear who you are and who we are. That you're explaining to us what the mess is, but also what you're doing about it. We thank you that we can trust you. We thank you that you are indeed working out your plan through your son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your spirit. Lord, we pray that your words will indeed enlighten us and that your spirit will help. We'll use those words to transform our hearts, to conform us more and more to uh, being the children you desire us to be and you intend us to be. And that we can put our confidence in you and our full hope in you. So, Lord, we pray that you would guide us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're going to look at First and Second Chronicles. I'll usually just refer to it Chronicles. It's really just one book. And as I mentioned in the scripture reading, what Chronicles is, how Chronicles ends, is it ends during the exile after the Babylonians had defeated Israel, defeated Judah, destroyed and uh, burned the temple in Jerusalem, and what few Jews were left alive, Israelites, they carried almost all of them away as prisoners to Babylon. And the way Chronicles ends is with the writer saying that God had Cyrus, who was a Persian king who had defeated the Babylonians, God had Cyrus announce that he wanted to allow the Jews that were remaining in Babylon to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and worship their God. And we read in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah about the folks that did that. They went back and rebuilt the temple and the wall around Jerusalem. But what's also apparent is that most of the Jews stayed where they were, and they did not go back to Jerusalem. And really, you can understand why, because you can understand why most of the exiles in Babylon would have said, why on earth would I want to go back there and rebuild the temple? What happened last time? God's plan looked pretty good. God said he was going to establish his people in that land and they were going to build a temple and they were going to worship and he was going to have his Levites and the priests were going to minister and the sons of David were going to lead the country and it was a disaster. The leaders were wicked, immoral. The priests were, uh, the priests were immoral and unfaithful. They were a bunch of hypocrites. And then the whole thing collapsed. All the blessings that God said he was going to bring, they didn't happen. It was just one disaster after another. And God himself tore the temple down. Why would I want to go back? Well, what the book of Chronicles is, which was written at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, in fact, it was probably Ezra who wrote it, is he is writing to the exiles who are still in Babylon and those that had gone back to Jerusalem, to answer the question, 
why would they want to go back and rebuild the temple and start again when the first time was such a disaster? Now, the reason we're going to look at this is because I think we can struggle with the same thing with why in the world would we go to church? I was quite encouraged last week and the last couple of weeks as Terry and the other elders were talking about all the positive things that go on in this church and how people here uh, love each other and demonstrate that. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm going to presume that not everybody in this room that your experience with the church throughout your life has been one unending happy party. Uh, I've been a believer for 51 years, and it is not my experience with the church has not been uninterruptedly happy. And even the local churches that I participated in, and certainly the church as a whole, whether you look historically from the time of Pentecost in the book of Acts all the way to today and through history, there's a lot of ugly stuff has happened in the church. And probably just about everybody in here knows people or have family members that if you talk about church, they say, why in the world would I want to go to a church? Well, as we look at what the chronicler wrote to the Jews that he was trying to encourage to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and resume temple worship, we're going to find there are parallels for us in the church today. Now, I'm going to make a distinction here that the church is not Israel. It's not even a replacement for Israel. But I think as we go through here, you'll see how there are parallels between how God works with a group of his people and his encouragement for them to go back. So that's what we're going to do. Now, for it to be more clear that that's actually what the writer of Chronicles is trying to accomplish, I want to just point out some differences between Samuel Kings and Chronicles. Remember, both Samuel Kings and Chronicles each cover the same time period. They each cover the period of the monarchy in the history of Israel. Uh, from the first king until the exile and the captivity of Babylon, about a 500-year period. But they each include different details. It's similar to in the New Testament that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all about the life and ministry of Christ, but they have different details and include different items in order to make the point they're making. And uh, I just want to point out some of the main differences that will become more apparent in Chronicles. But some of the big things that are, that are different, uh, Samuel King's is about 100 pages in my Bible. Chronicles is half that length. It's about 50 pages. Uh, but first of all is how they begin. How they begin. It's very striking how different they are. Uh, Samuel King's is about, overall is about 100 pages long. And a fourth of it, begins talking about Samuel, the prophet Samuel, and then King Saul, and why the monarchy began, 
and spends several pages talking about Saul's reign and how it ends. A fourth, it's, um, it's about 27 pages in my Bible. None of that is in Chronicles. Except for there's just about a fourth of a page of how Saul's reign ended and why he was killed. Next, when it starts talking about David and Solomon, uh, they include different things. For example, when we read in Chronicles, Chronicles never mentions David's sin with Bathsheba or all the consequences that occurred because of that. In Samuel Kings, there's several pages about it. In Chronicles, the chronicler doesn't even mention it. Same thing with Solomon. The chronicler never mentions Solomon building all of those pagan temples to keep his wives and concubines happy. He never mentions it. However, the chronicler does mention David's sin in taking a census. And he actually spends a couple of pages talking about it. Why does he do that? Well, we'll see in a little bit. Um, what the chronicler does include that Samuel Kings does not is there's a tremendous amount of information about what David did to organize the temple worship, to accumulate materials to build the temple, appointing singers and gatekeepers. There's pages and pages and pages of that. After David and Solomon, which, by the way, David and Solomon, their reigns comprise about half of Chronicles, then the pace really picks up with Solomon's son Rehoboam, and then the kings that follow, they're also different as to what the chronicler includes compared to Samuel Kings. And what we're going to find is uh, the chronicler doesn't even talk about the kings of the northern kingdom Israel after Israel splits into two kingdoms. He doesn't even bother with Israel, the northern kingdoms other than occasionally when they interact with the Judean kings. Um, But we'll see some other differences. And then also, here's a big thing, how they end, how Samuel Kings ends compared to how Chronicles ends. Samuel Kings ends with the temple pulled down and burned, the walls pulled down, Jerusalem's destroyed, and the kings are in captivity. Chronicles ends with God sovereignly having a pagan king inviting the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple. It's a different ending. So I'm going to suggest, and you can check this out later, I'm going to suggest that there's a difference in focus and purpose. The purpose of Samuel Kings and the focus of it is to convince the Jews and help them understand that a human king cannot provide the security and prosperity that they're after. Only God can. And you recall that's the reason they wanted a human king in the first place is because they did not like the way God was doing his job. And so the focus of Samuel Kings is to show how human kings cannot provide the security they want. However, when we come to Chronicles... The writer's uh, focus is different. In Chronicles, what the writer is trying to do to encourage the exiles to go back is that 
people's sin and rebellion that they have caused and the judgment that God brought against the Israelite kings and priests for their sin does not invalidate God's plan for them in the first place. God's plan for Jerusalem and the temple worship is still valid and in no way did their sin and rebellion uh, derail that. So let's go to Chronicles and look at it. And, And I've divided Chronicles up in three main movements where it seems to me like the writer's really trying to make his point. In the first section... In fact, I meant to say this when I talked about how the books differ and how they begin. Um, I mentioned Samuel King starts one-fourth of the beginning of Samuel King's is about Samuel and Saul and how Saul became a king. Uh, That's the whole point, that that was a rebellion against God. The chronicler doesn't even mention that. What he does is a sixth of chronicles is genealogies. Oh, no, genealogies. Oh, no. I want to help you with that. The chronicler's point is this. That the reason, one of the reasons why the exile should go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and worship God there is because that's where they belong, because that's who they are. They're God's people. Um, I want to talk a little bit about these genealogies. um, Give you a little bit of technical stuff to help you so you don't get derailed. It's almost a joke in the Christian world with Bible reading. I was doing fine until I hit the genealogies and oh, it derailed me. Well, I want to encourage you with one thing in a couple of ways. One is that all these genealogies in the first, in my Bible, it's eight and a half pages of genealogies in the beginning of Chronicles. Okay, I want to comfort you with the fact you don't have to know any of that to get into heaven. Okay? If Lee's about to enter heaven, he's not going to walk up to the gate and there's cherubim and seraphim up there with flaming swords and say, Lee, you want in here? All right, answer me this. What were the names of David's three nephews who were commanders in his army? And what was their mother's name? Huh? Answer me that and you can get in. Okay, that, I can say confidently that's not going to happen. But I'm going to go another step and I'm going to say this, that there's a tremendous amount of detail in here that we don't particularly need to know. Because we weren't there. This information is here because the people at the time that the Chronicle was writing to, that was useful information for them. It's not for us. But what is important is why is it in there? Why was it important to them? Well, these genealogies in these first eight pages are a lot more organized than they might seem if you start reading through there. I I don't actually know how many English Bibles I have. There are a lot of different versions. There's reasons why I have them. Partly it has to do with me being a Bible translator. But uh, you can tell as you read through and you see how different editions have put in headings and how they divide it up that some of the editors don't have a clue what's going on 
in these genealogies. There's others that do a really good job. All I'm, I'm not going to teach the genealogies this morning. I'm only going to point out a couple of things. It actually is organization from Abraham down to Jacob, and then it goes through each of Jacob's 12 sons. But there are certain sons, particularly Judah, that there's a whole lot more about Judah than there is, say, about Gad or Asaph genealogies. It's because David is in that line. But it's easy to get lost because it goes here and it goes there. It shoots different directions and it'll pick up one uncle or nephew and trace this line and backtrack. And it skips around a lot. I would argue that although once you begin to get a handle on it, it is actually pretty interesting. My wife loves genealogies because it actually is interesting when you get to know these people. But you don't really need to know that. Um, The... um, But the point that the chronicler is making is he is reminding them of who they are. And remember that who they are ethnically as Jews, and they identify themselves as Jews, the only reason they even have an identity is because God chose a guy named Abraham, and he said, I am going to raise up from you a people that I am going to place in a particular place And I'm going to reveal myself to you in a certain way through a certain religious temple system. And I'm going to use you to reveal myself to the rest of the world. That's who they are. That's where they belong. They don't belong somewhere else. My sister uh, actually had an example of this. For several years, my sister worked for a a financial advisor who was Jewish. He was an older fellow, but he was ethnically a Jew. That's how he identified himself, but he was not an observant Jew. He was not religious. He just identified himself ethnically as a Jew. However, one or two of his sons, I don't remember if it was two or just one of them. I never met them. My sister was just telling me the story. One of his sons, as he grew up, he actually became an observant Jew, and he and his wife uh, became more and more interested in this, and they actually eventually, they were Americans, they actually moved back, immigrated to Israel, and changed their citizenship, and became Israeli citizens, and he went to school and has become a rabbi. Now, why did he do that? Now, we understand that he is still lost because... He has rejected the Messiah. But that family was actually, if you place them back in the time of Chronicles, they're in the same shape. This young man and his family recognized, if we're Jews, we belong back in Israel, doing what God had covenanted with our forefathers to do. And so they moved. And so that is what... Uh, the chronicler is encouraging with these genealogies. Now, I want to add one more thing uh, here about... Uh, if you look in... I turned too far. First Chronicles chapter 3. I'll just mention a couple of things that can help. 
Again, one thing to keep in mind in these genealogies, it doesn't just start with Adam and go bang, bang, bang. It, it jumps back and forth. Um, I'll just mention that in First Chronicles chapter 3, verse 10 through 16, if you look at that list of names, that's the same list of names that's down on your handout, lower in your handout. That's an outline of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles is just going to go through that list because that's the kings from the uh, time Solomon's son Rehoboam becomes king down until you see the last one in that list is Zedekiah that we read a while ago. <clears throat> but I'll make one more point that will give you uh, a little bit of slack where you don't have to worry about learning all the details in here. And that is, if you look in chapter 9, 1 Chronicles chapter 9, it's really kind of ending the genealogies from in the past. So all Israel was enrolled by genealogies, and behold, they're written in the book of the kings of Israel. And Judah was carried away into exile into Babylon for their unfaithfulness. Okay, that's... Verse 2, now the first who lived in their possessions in their cities were Israel, the priests, Levites, temple servants. Some of the sons of Judah, the sons of Benjamin, and the sons of Ephraim and Manasseh lived in Jerusalem. And then they start going through all these lists of names that are extremely hard to follow down through verse 34. Okay, this helps us understand what Chronicles is about. These are mostly the same people that are in Nehemiah 11. The chronicler is now writing about people who are reading this. This is their families and who is where. That's why I say at the time that this was written, this was useful information to the original audience. If you go back in Nehemiah, uh, both in Ezra and Nehemiah, the leaders are always going through genealogies because part of God's plan for the descendants of Jacob... In the 12 tribes, they apportioned land. They had uh, appointed various uh, family members to certain jobs in the temple. And that's what all this is referring to. Now, when you and I read this, we're just going, we don't know who any of these people are. Well, the people, the original readers did. This was useful information to them. Um, I got to tell a story. Just a few weeks ago, my wife and I were at an event. And there was an older gentleman there who is quite a bit older than us. I think he was 90. I think he was 90. We're young. We're just in our 60s. But my wife was born and raised in Granbury. Uh, is there anybody else in here over the age of 50 that was born and raised in Granbury? I know some of you young people were because now we're old and our second generation is here. Well, anyway, Carrie starts visiting with this guy because he's an old-time Granbury guy. And it turns out that... Although they had never met, they started talking about their families. And they started going through their family trees. And, well, my grandmother was so-and-so, and my mother and my son and my grandson and my cousin and my sisters were here. And they started going through all these family lines and all these intersections. And as they would name people, they would mention events. They would just mention one or two words about some event that occurred I had no idea what they were talking about. But they did. That was useful information to them. They knew what they were referring to. 
because they're Granberry people, and they understand the history. And that's a lot of what's going on here. So what I would say is don't stress about trying to figure this out. If you try to reconcile this with the lists in Nehemiah, you're going to have trouble because they don't fit exactly. Um, But to the original audience, it did. Because what they're doing is they are reviewing in their mind. They're reviewing in their mind which people did God himself assign which tasks. Because that's what we want to do. They are reminding themselves of how God had organized this and they're wanting to resume it God's way. So what the chronicler is doing is reminding the Jews that one of the reasons that they need to go back to Jerusalem is because that's who they are and that's who God intended them to be and what he intended them to do. So how does that relate to us as Christians? What has God called us to be and do if we are believers? Now, the first thing I thought about was that verse from Hebrews. Do not neglect to meet together is the habit of some. That sounds too negative. But if we look back at what God has done when he calls people to be part of his kingdom, he's calling them to be a group of people. Not millions of unrelated individuals. And there's all kinds of passages in here. That's, um, I'm going to read in Titus where it says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And we can look at many passages in the New Testament that God is now, in building his church, is calling people to be a community that functions as a community. Just as when God set up the nation Israel and said, okay, it doesn't really work for you to just be Israelites, isolated, scattered. My intention is for you to be a community. And I am going to work in you and through you as a community. And that's what God does with the church. As we look in Ephesians, we read Ephesians 5, but in Ephesians 4, you'll recall that after that after Paul explains how God has saved us from our sin and is transforming us into uh, new people who are more and more like his son in righteousness, where does that occur? Well, God has chosen to do that within the church. And so we need to be in the church because that's who we are. That's who God made us to be. Now, there's a second 
section in Chronicles. And that's where God now, once he's given all these genealogies, and he really just kind of skips over Saul, and he goes to David and Solomon. In my Bible, he he devotes 15 pages to King David and seven to Solomon. And it's interesting that in all the things he tells us about David, uh, he never says anything about the sin with Bathsheba. Uh, you might turn in First Chronicles to uh, chapter 20. And the point I want to make here is that the chronicler is not trying to hide anything. He knows that everybody knows about Bathsheba. In 1 Chronicles chapter 20, as the chronicler is going through the reign of David, he says, Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that Joab led out the army and ravaged the land of the sons of Ammon and came and besieged Reba. But David stayed in Jerusalem. You can put a little carrot there. And Joab struck Rabbah and overthrew it. Okay, right after it says, but David stayed in Jerusalem, that's almost word for word exactly what it says in 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel. And then the chronicler leaves out about five pages because that's not part of the story he wants to have in here. It doesn't need to be here. Now, the chronicler knows that people know about that. In fact, at the end of the book, he says that, okay, after David dies, he says, now the acts of King David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer, in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and in the chronicles of Gad the seer. So the chronicler knows there's lots of other written documents. In fact, it's interesting in Chronicles, there's like 19 different documents that he refers people to. He says you can go fill in the blanks with those other things. He does the same thing with uh, King Solomon. When he goes through King Solomon's reign, he just skips over the whole part about building pagan temples to keep his wives happy. So why does he do that? Well, I want to suggest that what he's doing here is the part that the chronicler is focusing on with David and Solomon is over and over he's focusing on what they did at God's direction that was correct. In other words, he is validating what David and Solomon did and what the chronicler focuses on that Samuel and Kings hardly talk about at all is if you read all those pages, there's almost nothing about all the wars and the fighting and David's tension with Saul. It just completely goes over that. All the consequences of David's sin with Bathsheba. Almost all of it has to do with them establishing and organizing the temple and the worship that takes place there. All the appointment of the singers, uh, who's going to be taking care of the furniture, It's all of that organization. And so what the chronicler does is he makes a point that God, in fact, is the one who appointed David. And he goes over the 
the Davidic promise that the Davidic line is going to be a dynasty that will reign forever and that Solomon is, in fact, the successor that God chose and placed him there. And over and over, the chronicler is validating David and Solomon as God's appointed people to establish that temple worship. Now, think about this. This is quite common throughout the scripture. For example, when we go back to um, go back to Exodus, God tells us in the uh, in the story of Exodus quite a bit about his preparation of Moses. There's several pages about his birth and his childhood, about God selecting him and things that he did. And all of that's in there to validate the fact that Moses really is the person that God chose and sent. So his leadership and his instruction is reliable. Listen to him because he's my spokesman. Um, In Samuel Kings, the writer does the same thing with Samuel. There's several pages about Samuel's birth and his upbringing and all the weird stuff about him hearing voices and, and all of that. Well, why is he doing that? Well, God in the scripture is validating that Samuel really is the guy that God chose and used him to direct the establishment of the monarchy and... Uh, Subsequently, the deposing of Saul for his rebellion against God and the establishment of David as the proper king. Basically, the Lord goes to a lot of trouble in the scripture to validate Samuel really as the guy. The scripture does the same thing with John the Baptist. We get a lot of background about God preparing John the Baptist to validate he really is the guy that God is sending. So listen to him. And in fact, now this is a special case. God does that with Jesus. He gives us quite, he gives us some information about how Jesus was born and how he entered into his ministry to validate this really is the guy, this really is the Messiah. And so what the writer of Chronicles is doing is you say, well, why did he pick what he did? For, to tell us about David and Solomon, why did he pick the things that are so different from what Samuel Kings put? Well, that's why. His point is to validate that for all of David's and Saul's failures, and they were many, they're listed in Samuel and Kings because we're supposed to know about them. We're supposed to know that human king cannot save us. But at the same time, God did choose them and use them as spokesmen for him to establish the temple worship. So it's establishing his credibility. Just a side note that helps you read details. Uh, I mentioned that it doesn't tell us about David's sin with Bathsheba. So why does the chronicler tell us about his sin of taking a census in the judgment that came upon them for that? We don't normally do this in sermons, but I'm just going to ask. Does someone want to respond? You want to think? Why would the chronicler, with his focus on temple worship and the validity of the temple in Jerusalem, why would he have included David's sin about taking a census? I know David Hubbard knows, but I know Carl knows. 
If you read that, the chronicler spends a couple of pages talking about it. If you recall that that whole uh, sin and the judgment against Israel for that sin ends at a particular location on a particular hill on the threshing floor of Aruna. Aruna, am I pronouncing that right? Where was the temple built? There. And that's why it was built there. So that's important for the chronicler to show why the temple was built there. That's still important. Imagine how many observant Jews in the world now wish they could resume the temple sacrifice. Why don't they? Because they can't. Because God has commanded, there's only one place you can do it. And that's in this spot. So why don't they rebuild the temple there? The mosque is there. This is relevant in the history papers today. So I'm going to say that what the chronicler is doing is he is validating the, uh, the Davidic and the dynasty and as it's perpetuated through Solomon for this reason. It's because he's showing that God himself worked through these guys for all their faults. It really was God who assigned them the task of establishing the temple and building it and getting the worship going there. And so this, in fact, was God's plan. And so one reason that the chronicler is giving the exiles to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and worship there is because he's saying, hey, the fact that the people before messed up and God judged them and destroyed the temple does not invalidate the original plan. That is still valid. God is the one who presented it. So what about us in the church? If it's true that David and Solomon, even as just people who are sinners, if they were legitimately set apart by God and marked by Him to establish the form of the worship and the location and the direction and how it was to take place, how much more true is that for us? That the son of David, the fulfillment of the Davidic promise, the Messiah that Israel was looking for, that through all the testimony that we read about the Gospels, that this is the guy, this is the one, this is the son of David who's going to establish righteousness. How much more is it valid if he says, this is what I want my people to look like. This is what I want worship to look like. This is where I want it to take place. I'm going to describe to you what I want my church to look like and how it's going to operate. Well, The story continues. Whoever it is that divided Chronicles into two parts, this is where they divided it. And it kind of makes sense. We get to 2 Chronicles. 
And what Second Chronicles does now is it just follows one king after another in this Davidic dynasty. Solomon's son Rehoboam, Rehoboam's son Abijah, Abijah's son Asa. It goes on down. The last three get jumbled up because it's such a mess down there. But that's the list that we saw in First Chronicles chapter 3. And what the writer is going to do is just go through all of these. And what we're going to find is it's a little bit different from what the chronicler did with Solomon, with David and Solomon. It's also different what uh, Samuel King's writer did. First of all, whereas the chronicler didn't really, he just glossed over the sins of David and Solomon because that's not the part he was focusing on. Here, we're going to find that the chronicler does just the opposite. That what he does is he points out the sins of just about all of them. Even the good kings, that Samuel Kings doesn't tell us about some of the bad things they did. The chronicler does. The chronicler does. And I'm going to suggest that what he's doing is this. And then we'll talk about how he does it. The chronicler is telling the exiles, and it's what I need to hear as a Christian when I get frustrated with the church, is that the sins of the people that populate the outworking of God's plan, the sins of the kings in the Davidic line, the sins of the priests, those things do not invalidate God's plan They are, in fact, the reason for the plan. The fact that people are sinners and rebel against God are the whole reason that God is doing this in the first place. And God has chosen to work in such a way that He's taking all of those sinners from outside that we look down our nose at and we think, well, I'm glad we're not like them. Well, in fact... That's who we are. (laughs) That's where we come from. And God has brought us into His community. And He is working on us gradually to change us. But it should not surprise us that we find ourselves doing the same kind of things that people in the world do. But God is gradually transforming us and making us more and more like Christ. That was true to some degree even in the Old Testament. God was definitely working in people's hearts. The Holy Spirit was working. And certainly He works more in an additional way in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. And other than the fact that God says He's doing that, He doesn't define exactly. As, uh, as our engineer, Pastor Keith, would say, I can't draw that in a chart. All I can say is, God works additionally in believers today in a way that he didn't in the Old Testament, but he was still working in people in the Old Testament. So let's just look at a few of these things. I'm going to pick uh, two or three of these guys, and what we're going to see is all of those list of kings, there's several of them that the, the Scriptures just tell us he was bad and he did evil. He didn't do anything good. There's one guy that the scripture, that uh, the chronicler doesn't say one way or the other. Believe it or not, Abijah doesn't say one way or the other what he did was good. 
There's only one guy that we're only told he did good and nothing else bad. But there's several of them that are, we think of as the good kings, but every one of them, the chronicler tells us what he did wrong. There's Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Amaziah, Uzziah, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Josiah. Excuse me, Manasseh. I'm going to come back to Manasseh. He's backwards. All of those guys start out well, and then they crash later in life. They did not end well. Let's just look at a couple of examples. I'm going to look at Asa um, in chapter 16 of Second Chronicles. So Asa's reign, we begin reading in in, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 14. So his father Abijah slept with his fathers, that is, he died, and they buried him in the city of David. And his son Asa became king in his place. Now the land was undisturbed for ten years during his reign. Verse 2, Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. For he removed the foreign altars and high places, tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the ashram. So we have now about a whole page of things that he did that were good. Reforms that he did, trusting in the Lord, being obedient. But look what happens at the end when we get to verse 16, or chapter 16. Chapter 16, they've got a foreign threat. And what Asa does is he takes money from the temple and gives it to a foreign power in hopes of securing safety and security. What does God think about that in verse 7? At that time, Hanani the seer, seer is just another word for prophet, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you've relied on the king of Aram and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. And he goes on about why he shouldn't have done that. In verse 10, Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison. For he was enraged at him for this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. As we read through this, we're going to find a remarkable number of these kings that begin well, serving the Lord, being obedient, uh, bringing reform and getting rid of idols because God is working in them to propel them to do that. Towards the end of the life, they actually turn. And several of them, when the Lord sends a prophet to warn them about it, well, Hanani got imprisoned. Micaiah got struck and put in prison. Zechariah was killed. Uh, There was another prophet that came to Amaziah who was threatened. Uh, When a priest went to Uzziah, that priest was confronted and the king became enraged. What we're going to find is as these kings... Later on, turn against God when somebody tries to stand up and say, oh, wait a minute. They become enraged. Um, let's pick on which one to do. Let's look at Joash. Let's look at Joash. Turn to chapter 24. 
Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles 24, Joash was seven years old when he became king and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah from Beersheba. Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. When you go back and read, uh, as is their practice back then, a bunch of his family tried to kill him when he was a kid so he couldn't ascend to the throne. Jehoiada the priest hid him. Uh, from his grandmother of all people is trying to kill him, or his mother. Anyway, as long as that priest was alive, Jehoiada did well. Jehoiada took two wives for him. He became father of sons and daughters. Now, skip down. Uh, oh, Joash. See, Joash does a bunch of temple reforms. He does a bunch of good things, but skip down to verse 17. But after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. They abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. So wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this, their guilt. Yet God sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. And though they testified against them, they wouldn't listen. And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, and he stood above the people and said to him, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and don't, and don't prosper? It's because you've forsaken the Lord. He's also forsaken you. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which his father Jehoiada had shown him, but he murdered his son, and he died. He said, May the Lord... See and avenge. You remember when uh, in Matthew, I believe it's in um, Matthew 23, Jesus is pronouncing woes against the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and he's telling them all the things that they've done wrong. And one of the things that he, they, he uh, accuses them of, he said, You're just like your forefathers who have killed all the prophets, from righteous Abel all the way to... Zedekiah, or Zechariah, I'm sorry. All the way to Zechariah. Well, this is who Jesus is referring to. He's referring to this guy. So what do we see? You can read through all of these kings and you'll find that unlike Samuel kings, even the good kings who the Lord used to bring about reforms and proper worship at the temple, they still failed And God brought judgment against them. There's only one example, and that's Manasseh. This is a real weird one. We won't read it. Manasseh in Samuel Kings, all we hear about is the bad part. Manasseh is the one king where it's just the reverse of the normal pattern. He starts out bad, but he repents and ends well. Samuel King doesn't include that. But the chronicler does because he wants us to know the fact that these people are acting this way does not invalidate the reality and the truth and the righteousness of what God is doing. And now this is very important. It's very important. It demonstrates that 
God was just when he brought destruction on Jerusalem and had the temple torn down. He was just when he did that. The chronicler doesn't make that statement exactly, but Nehemiah does. And remember, this is written at the same time Ezra and Nehemiah are trying to get the exiles to return and the exiles that are there to rebuild the temple and resume the worship. And Nehemiah specifically says that in his long prayer when the people uh, reaffirm their commitment to the covenant, he goes over this whole history. And he says, Lord, we have sinned. Our forefathers have sinned. We've been rebelling against you from the day Moses led us out of Egypt. We've brought this disaster on ourselves. But he said, Lord, you have been just in what you have done. You were right in driving us out of the land. You were right in destroying the temple. That was not a failure on your part. We deserved it. And we can do nothing except ask for your mercy and grace. And that's what the chronicler is trying to bring the exiles to recognize and show that that's what has happened. So, why is another reason that the exiles should go back in spite of what happened? In spite of the fact that everything fell apart? It's because the sinfulness of God's people and the judgment he brought against them for that has not, did not eliminate the validity of the plan God had for how he was going to work in his people. It was all part of the plan for him to reveal who he was. I want to say that's true for us in the church. You know, I'm going to confess, as I said earlier, there have been a lot of times in my life when I thought, go to church. Why in the world would I want to do that? A bunch of not looking all that good. Doesn't look to me. You know, the church looks pretty good on paper. But have you ever gone there? A lot of churches, you know, this church is a pretty pleasant one to come to for most people, but not everyone's had that experience. There may be people sitting here in the room right now thinking, not such a picnic, really. And for sure, when you look at the church as a whole, when you look at all the religious leaders and public figures who they write books that we sell in our bookstore and then they crater, they turn, they deny the faith, they're involved in all kinds of sin. I've got a close relative who's not a believer. Now, his main problem, of course, (laughs) is he rejects the gospel and the Lord. But a big part of it is He looks at religion in general and Christianity in particular and he looks at the history and he gets on the news and he looks on social media and he looks at people who are claiming to be Christians and the trash they're putting out there. And my relative says, "Uh, no, thank you. And here's the painful thing. A lot of the things that he points out, he's right They shouldn't be going on in the church. 
And there are times when we're not feeling so warm and huggy. And as my son would say, oh, yeah, let's just all sit around the campfire and sing Kumbaya and love each other. Let's be honest, there's times when the church doesn't feel like that. But I think the Lord tells us the same thing that he had the chronicler tell the exiles. I know that. It's because the Israelites are a bunch of sinners, just like the people that are not Israelites. But I'm working in them. I've got a plan. Come together. Trust me. I'm working on you. I'm working on them. And that's what the church says to us. The church is full of people who fail. I'm one of them. But the Lord says, you know what? I've got a plan and it's going to work. Maybe not the way you want to, maybe not as fast as you want to, but I am working in you. I'm working in the people that are sitting around you. I'm working in those people that say dumb things on social media and disgrace the name of Christ. I'm building my church. And I'm going to confess that the reason I'm thinking about this, I got this is a last minute shoot up a flare from Terry when he got sick. He said, David, I need somebody to fill in. I thought, what am I going to talk about? And I'm thinking about this because the Lord's brought me to the point where I realized that I had gotten to where I was putting my trust in the wrong place. I was putting my trust in the church and the people in the church. The church can't save itself and it can't save me and it can't save the world. What the church is, is a collection of people that Jesus Christ, the son of David, He is saving them by His power. And He's called us together and He's working through us in community together to be transforming us and changing us to be like Him. And it should not surprise us that since He's still working on us and we're not completely conformed to Christ yet, that we grate on each other, we fail, it gets hard. But that's all right, because our trust is not in the church. It's in the God who works through the church. If I get up here and I'm a missionary that the church supports and I get up here and I preach a bunch and people say, well, David helped me understand Ecclesiastes. And then my, my, my life of faith bombs out. Carl doesn't have to panic about that. He can be sorry that that happened and then I turn, he can pray for my repentance. But if he's trusting in me to save him and save the world, well, he's toast. But if he's trusting in Christ to work on me and work through you and work through us, well, now we've got hope. Now it's not so painful. You know, if you go into a hospital and you get discouraged to find out that everybody in there is sick, well, maybe you have a wrong view of what a hospital is for. (laughs) Okay. The church isn't perfect people that God chose to be on His team because we have the ability to go save the world. We are people who are lost and going to hell. And He has called us to give us life and to work through us, of all people, to help each other. 
final reason the chronicler gives for the exiles to go back. The last two verses at the end of the book. This is what's not in Samuel Kings. Now the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, God had said a long time ago this was going to happen. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Cyrus is a pagan. One of the most astonishing things throughout all of the scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, is how many times God will take people who don't even believe in him. And he says, this is my assignment for you, and you're going to do it. And they do it, not sometimes not even realizing that's what's happened. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. What is God doing? God is sovereignly paving a way for people who deserved his punishment, deserved his judgment, and were banned to a foreign country. God is sovereignly and graciously providing a way for them to come back and be part of his community that he is caring for. And he is inviting them to come. He's not grabbing them by the hair and dragging them. He's inviting them to come back and worship him. That's what the Lord's doing in the church. You may know people who think, go to church, why would I do that? It's even more of a heartbreak when people who are truly believers, they've had it up to here with the church. Bunch of hypocrites. Big mess. Watch the news. I don't, want any part, I don't want people to know I'm part of that. It can be frustrating. But God has said, you know what? The son of David, the Messiah, has said, this is my plan. Trust me. And you can come be part of my people. And I'm going to fulfill all the blessings, all the promises that we've made. You're going to get them. Just trust me about how it's going to work out. Because the son of David, who was sinless and is the son of God, the only one who ever lived a perfect life, he was so committed to this plan and faithful to his father's plan that he went to the cross and was executed as a criminal when he was sinless in order to pay the penalty for our sins. Not only was he crucified on the cross, but his father even turned, God the Father turned his back on him as he took the sin, your sin and my sin upon himself. And he paid that penalty so that it's now canceled out. And then God the Father raised Jesus from the dead and has put him on the throne. And the son of David is now on the throne. And the invitation is there. Anyone who desires 
there's a path now to be restored to God and part of His people that He's caring for and preparing for heaven. All we have to do is accept that gracious offer and we have it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank You that You're a God who does not change. You're the same yesterday and today and forever. And we realize at different times at history you've had different people in different situations and you've had people worship you different ways. But Lord, your character has always been the same as you reveal yourself to people. Both your righteousness and your judgment of sin and also your grace and mercy to provide a way of deliverance, a way of escape. The captivity that the exiles had in Babylon was simply an earthly captivity. And their restoration in Jerusalem was largely just a political and earthly one and a reestablishment of the nation Israel. But we realize that through your son and building the church, you're doing something much, much bigger than that in establishing an, an eternal kingdom of believers. It's not of this world, but is of heaven. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that for any of those that are here that have never really accepted that offer and trusted you, that your spirit would move them this morning, that they would be willing to accept that offer and to trust you and to realize that, Lord, that they would just trust you. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name.